millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is Recycle by Eurosport. A retrospective series on the most extraordinary riders, races and stories in cycling history. We are once again recording and producing in isolation for this episode, so please forgive us if the sound quality isn't quite what you might expect it to be. Recycle is written by Felix Lowe, narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, and produced by Pete Burton. In our previous episode, we told the tale of two summits, back to 1991, when Spaniard Eduardo Chozas denied Italy's Claudio Chiappucci in the Giro d'Italia's first ever finish at the ski resort of Sestriere. Just 14 months later, the Italian would make his mark on the mountain and solo to victory in one of the most magnificent breakaways in Tour de France history. And that is where we pick up, with the first Dutchman to lead the tour, Wim van Est, in 1951. Van Est's short tenure in the Jean was brought to a heart-sinking end when he was forced out of the race while still in yellow, less than 24 hours after plunging into a ravine on the Col de Obisque. 1951 also holds a handsome place in Tour de France history, for it saw in the fleeting reign of Swiss peddler de charme Hugo Coblet. Before Coblet wore the Jean with such style, however, Van Est veered off course but he's not alone in having done so. Sixteen riders have withdrawn from the Tour de France while wearing the yellow jersey, but none more dramatically than the Dutchman. Sickness and a broken bike accounted for Francis Pellissier and Victor Fontaine in the 1920s, while another French duo, Bernard Eno in 1980 and Stéphane Hulot in 1996, bowed out with knee injuries. Belgium's Sylvain Mais and Italy's Fiorenzo Magni left in protest in 1937 and 1950, respectively, while another Belgian, Bernard van der Kerkhover, was laid low by sunstroke in 1965. Then, in 1983, came Francis Pascal Simon, who soldiered on for six days with a fractured shoulder before quitting in yellow, almost within touching distance of Paris. Others, under the darkness of a doping cloud, were booted out. That includes Denmark's Michael Rasmussen in 2007 and Michel Polentier, the Belgian who attempted to use someone else's urine sample during a doping test in 1978. 
Palentier's method is worth a mention. The rider had rigged up a system that held the sample in a condom under his armpit. It was then fed down through a tube under his jersey to give the impression, with his back turned, that he was passing it as his own. Palentier was uncovered only after another rider had difficulty operating his own system of tubes and aroused the suspicion of the doctor, who then demanded Palentier lift his own jersey. Then you have those unfortunate souls who, despite sitting on top of the deck, were dealt a fateful card, with huge opening week falls dashing the hopes of Chris Boardman in 1998, Fabian Cancellara and Tony Martin, both in 2015. And so we turn to the only Dutchman on the list. Wim van Est had barely ridden two-thirds of his first day leading the tour when he careered off the road and into a ravine in the Pyrenees. He came to rest just metres above a sheer drop that would have ended not only his race, but his life. Known as Iron William, the locomotive, and even the executioner, Willem van Est was best known simply as Vim. The beefy, barrel-chested Dutchman was born in Brabant in 1923, the second of 16 children. His younger brothers, Nico and Piet, were also cyclists, with the latter winning a stage of the Giro in the early 60s. Life was tough for the Van Estes, who lost everything during the First World War and lived on a makeshift farm. When one of Vim's brothers died of a respiratory illness, Van Est's father couldn't afford to buy a coffin. He had to make one himself before cycling to the local church, the coffin under his arm and a shovel attached to his frame with an inner tube to bury his son. To help support his impoverished family during the Second World War, Vim cycled across the border to Belgium to smuggle cheese and tobacco as a teenager often returning with soap that he would sell on the black market, an illicit activity that earned him six months in prison, but also helped build his strength. With the war and his stint behind bars over, Van Est turned his thoughts to racing to earn his crust. He had watched a race in his village, St. Villebroad, and reckoned he could go faster. And with good reason. In those days, coal delivery lorries were used as broom wagons on the amateur circuit. Vim had a knack of attacking from far out, making him rather unpopular among his soot-covered rivals. The happy-go-lucky Van Est turned pro in 1949, at the age of 26. A year later, he won the gruelling 600km Bordeaux-Paris Marathon Classic, returning in 1951 to finish second. Strong as an ox, Van Est's armoury was a melange of passion, guile and brute force exactly what you'd expect from a hard-working farmhand with a weather-beaten face, calloused fists and a Dutch dialect so severe most of his compatriots struggled to understand what he was saying. Van Est's bike handling and cornering also left a lot to be desired. But being a tough nut, he would always pick himself up and get back in the saddle. By 1951, he'd done enough to catch the eye of the Dutch selectors who picked him to make his tour debut. Growing up in poverty meant Van Est had travelled very little. Those two trips to Bordeaux were the furthest he had ever strayed from home. Now the 28-year-old was to embark on a tour of France. It would be the first time Van Est had seen, 
let alone ridden up a proper mountain. The route of the 1951 Tour de France stood out for two reasons. It was the first tour to feature Mont Ventoux and the first route to stray from France's hexagonal circumference and visit the country's interior, with two stages in the Massif Central. Defending champion Ferdinand Kubler was not present at the start in Metz. After a stellar spring in which he had won the Flèche Wallon, Liège-Bastogne-Liège and the Tour of Romandy, the Swiss rider had finished third in the Giro before winning the Tour de Suisse. If Kubler was due a rest, he also had no desire to ride in the services of his compatriot and rival Coblet in France. Coblet had been beaten by Kubler in both the Tours of Romandy and Switzerland either side of finishing sixth in the Giro, one year after becoming the first non-Italian winner, and that on his Giro debut. But the 26-year-old, five years his rival's junior, was a star on the rise and he'd been promised leadership of the Swiss team in France despite Kubler's win in 1950. Theirs was a rivalry that, if not quite of Copy versus Bartoli stature, was just as intriguing. Two powerful engines, Kubler and Coblet were not so much chalk and cheese on the bike as Emmental and Gruyère, and there was no debate as to whom was riddled with more holes. Kubler was a strong man, instantly recognisable from his hooked nose and demonic grin, which, at times of saddle-bound hardship, gave him a look of a crazed Mr Punch. Often frothing at the mouth when making big efforts, he earned himself the nickname the Peddling Madman. No such moniker for Coblet, the original peddler de charme. Tall, manicured, urbane, Coblet had matinee idle looks and rarely raced without a comb in his back pocket, sometimes alongside a small bottle of eau de cologne. A smooth, elegant rider, he wasn't averse to striking out from distance. After all, winning by a big margin gave him the chance to wash his face and sort out his wavy fair hair before taking the arm of a hostess on the podium. The peloton had not seen anyone this beautiful since the days of Charles Pelissier. If the French dandy was the Beau Brumel of the bunch, then Coblet was called Apollo on a bike by L'Equipe. Behind every smooth facade, however, the truth is often less pristine. Take Coblet's habit of combing his hair during races, for instance. It's thought he employed this tactic to gain a psychological advantage over his rivals by giving the impression he was finding it all too easy. It was a tactic he used on the hardest climb of the 1950 Tour de Suisse. In reality, he was actually suffering from acute hemorrhoids. It was an open field that started the tour in Metz on July the 4th, 1951. On paper, Fausto Coppi should have been the man to beat, but the Italian Campionissimo was reeling from the death of his brother following a crash in the Tour of Romandy just weeks earlier. The grieving copy had threatened to quit cycling, but decided to take to the start just days after burying his beloved brother Circe, the 1949 joint Paris-Roubaix winner, and was in no state to compete for yellow. Indeed, he seemed preoccupied in trying to persuade the tour organisers to bend the men-only rule in the caravan so he could be accompanied by his wife during the race. A strong Italian team still boasted the talents of Gino Bartoli, and the so-called third man of the golden age, Fiorenzo Magni, 
while the Belgians were led by the dependable Stan Ockers, runner-up to Kubler in 1950. Koblet's biggest challenger perhaps came from France's ranks, which boasted the 1947 champion Jean Robich, the climber Raphael Gimignani, and the all-rounder Louison Bobet, the French national champion who had won Milan-San Remo in the spring. On his first day in the Tour, Coblet couldn't resist having a dig. Barely had the gun fired for the opening stage to Rance when the Swiss charmer put in a rasping attack. After 40 kilometres of frantic chasing, Coblet was brought to heel and a truce ensued. But he had left no one in the dark as to his overarching intentions. The race settled until the first time trial, a mammoth 85-kilometre offering for stage 7 when Coblet didn't so much as throw down the gauntlet as toss in an entire suit of armour, winning in Angers while eliminating a dozen riders in the process. A timekeeping botch, however, initially had Bobet down for the win, which would have put the Frenchman in yellow. But the intermediate timings showed this was impossible, and Coblet was duly granted his rightful triumph. With an extra minute time bonus, he rose to third place on GC. The next three stages saw the tour head inland to the Massif Central, but it was stage 11, a transitional ride between Brive and Argent, where Coblet really came into his own. With the Pyrenees and Alps still on the horizon, no one expected anyone with designs on the Mayo Jean to attack on such an innocuous stage, but Coblet was king of the unconventional. As the debutant zipped clear with 135 kilometres remaining, his rivals laughed into their musettes, no doubt believing he would burn himself out before the mountains. Soon, the gap was up to four minutes, and panic spread like wildfire. A puncture for Bobet meant the French team had to drop back, leaving only the Italians to chase. The gap was still three minutes with 70 kilometres to go, and... Despite the best efforts of the peloton, Coblet held his nerve. The Swiss rolled into Argent more than three and a half minutes ahead. Philippe Brunel wrote in L'Equipe that followers were astonished to see him sit up, blow kisses to girls and take out of his pocket a sponge soaked in water. He was barely across the line when he rinsed his face in Perrier, combed his hair, then started his stopwatch. The stopwatch was to avoid a repeat of the incident that marred Coblet's time trial victory. He wanted to make sure the officials got it right this time. It was after this great escape that the cabaret singer Jacques Grello coined the famous peddler de charme phrase that would become part of cycling folklore. Coblet stayed in third place in the standings, but slashed his deficit to leader Roger Levesque to 3 minutes 27 with Gilbert Bovin splitting the two at 36 seconds. Another Frenchman, Gimignani, was up to fourth, but under no illusions as to who was in control of the race. That was a performance without equal, he said. If there were two coblets in the sport, I would retire from cycling tomorrow. If he climbs like he races on the flat, then we can say goodbye to the yellow jersey. None of us will wear it. If he avoids any problems, then we can all start looking for another job.
But what of our man Wim van Est in all of this? The Dutch debutant had enjoyed a solid start to his tour career, having been part of the stage six break alongside Levesque and Beauvain, which stole a 13-minute march on the peloton. One day after Coblet's masterclass, Van Est struck out to make history. Alongside compatriot Gerrit Vorting, he was part of a 10-man break that quickly built up a big lead over the pack during the 233-kilometre stage from Ajon to Dax. With no GC threat in the move, the gap continued to grow. Vorting then let out his teammate, who got the better of French fastman Louis Capou on a cinder running track in the spa town of southwest France. With the peloton coming home more than 18 minutes down, Van Est not only took a debut stage win, but wrestled control of the yellow jersey. And he made a piece of Dutch cycling history in the process. Speaking at the time, a jubilant but clinical Van Est said, I won the sprint because it was on a track. And on a track, you have to take care to stay as close as possible to the inner lane. Normally, I should have lost the sprint because Louis Capou was in our group too. That night, we had a nice party. But little did Van Est and his Dutch team know that his first day in yellow would also be his and their last in the race. His first rendezvous with the high mountains saw Van Est determined to do the yellow jersey proud. He anticipated the difficulty of the Col d'Obisque by striking out early on the 201km stage 13 to Tarb. The tactic paid off. Despite his minimal climbing experience, Van Est went over the top of the climb still in contention with the likes of Coblet, Coppi and Ockers, who were riding in pursuit of Giminiani, the first man over the summit. But going up was only half the challenge. If Van Est had never scaled anything in the league of the Obisque, the mountain that caused those early tour trailblazers to curse the organisers as murderers, he'd never ridden down such a sinuous and steep slope, one that was known to be among the hardest in cycling. After gingerly taking the opening hairpins, Van Est skidded once, but pressed on. Moments later, he was flung from the road in a dramatic somersault, Unhurt and unfazed, Van Est climbed back up and set off again, just as the Italian Magni zipped by. As the Dutchman recalled, he just went in his wheel because Magni was known to be a great descender. I didn't see the danger and we both came closer to the leaders very fast. Van Est's inexperience coupled with his risk-taking, poor bike handling and the treacherous nature of the obese descent all made for a terrible combination. The road was narrow, with a wall of rock on one side, an abyss on the other, and numerous hairpins often hidden by the rock face. Dropped by Magni, Van Est was caught by Spanish duo Francesco Marcid and Dalmacio Langarica, as well as Belgium's Roger de Kock. Then came his third and final fall. It was wet from the snow, and there were sharp stones on the road that the cars had kicked up. My front wheel hit them, and I went over, Van Est said many years later, as reported in Les Woodlands' Yellow Jersey Companion to the Tour de France. I wanted to go left, but the bike went straight on. 
Nowadays, there is a wall on the same corner, but not in 1951. I was lucky because I unlocked the pedal straps just before I started to descend. When I fell, I kicked my bike away and held my hands over my head. In a few seconds, I saw my whole life flash before me. My fall was cushioned by some young trees, and I caught one of these trees. Van Ness plunged over the vertical walled edge of the road and then fell some 70 metres into a ravine. Thanks to those trees and a large dollop of good luck, he came to rest on a ledge of a tiny outcrop perilously perched above a sheer drop. A metre left or right, and I'd have dropped onto solid stone, six or seven hundred metres down, Van Est explained. My ankles were all hurt. My elbows were kaput. I was bruised and shaken up, and I didn't know where I was, but nothing was broken. I just lay there as the other riders were going by. One rider who didn't just go by was de Kock, the Belgian who would win the Tour of Flanders in 1952. Having witnessed Van Est's theatrical fall, he stopped to sound the alarm and warn the other chasing riders oblivious to the drama on the descent. Below, there were no signs of life as the Dutch team manager Kees Pellenaars arrived and some of the other Dutch riders gathered. They called out for Van Est, but all they heard was an echo. The official Tour Centennial Edition Annual, 1903-2003, picks up the drama. Some deity must have been watching over Wim Van Est. First one arm lifted, then the other. Bent double, he picked himself up and staggered towards his bicycle. Dragging it on all fours, he tried to climb back up. The followers on the edge of the precipice, sick with anxiety, could hardly believe what they were seeing. Clambering up, Van Est soon realised that his bike was a mangled write-off. Miraculously, the individual components of the Dutchman's personal frame didn't seem to be broken. Looking up, he could make out his teammate Gerrit Peters, who would later tell him that, in the resplendent yellow jersey, he looked like a buttercup. But according to de Kock, he looked more like a dandelion. One of the first figures to reach the rider was a Belgian photographer by the name of Piron, who, while lending a helping hand, couldn't resist taking a snap or two. It was his photo of a tearful Van Est, steadying himself an invisible shock on the edge of the ravine, which would adorn the pages of newspapers and magazines. Pelinars took a rope out of the Dutch team car and threw it into the ravine, but it wasn't long enough. Some improvisation was needed. They got 40 tubular tyres, knotted them together, tied them to the tow rope and threw it down to me, said Van Est who was later described as the miraculous survivor of the obisque. It was all the tyres that Pelinars had for the team. By the time they pulled me up, they were stretched and wouldn't stay on the wheels anymore. It took an hour to winch Van Est to safety. Grazed and bleeding, he collapsed, repeatedly uttering words of thanks through the tears. Although his injuries were only superficial, Van Est was put onto an ambulance as Pelinars shooed away the swarming photographers. One journalist offered the rider his flask of cognac, which Van Est accepted. Perhaps emboldened by the booze, the Dutch hardman regained some composure and started to say, I want to go on. I want 
to go on. But Palinar's convinced Van Est to go to hospital instead to be checked out. He decided to pull the entire Dutch team from the race, hardly a surprise given they no longer had any spare tubulars. Half the peloton, meanwhile, had no idea what had happened until they reached Tarb, assuming simply that the yellow jersey was still out on the road and having an off day. While Van Est was being taken to hospital in an ambulance, the Italian Serafino Biagioni was awarded the stage win in Tarb after Giminiani, who appeared to win the sprint, was demoted to fourth place after an altercation on the home straight. Bovin, also part of the four-man winning move, finally took the yellow jersey as the quartet came home some nine minutes clear of Coblet and the other GC favourites. Coblet dropped to fifth in the standings, now trailing his main rival Giminiani by more than six minutes. But the Swiss turned the race on its head in the Pyrenean Queen stage the next day. Coppi went over the Aspan and Perasuda in pole position, before Coblet fought back from a puncture on the Tourmalet to win in Luchon and seize the yellow jersey, which he would keep all the way to Paris. If his advantage over Giminiani after stage 14 was just 32 seconds, it would swell to a massive 22 minutes over the next 10 days. He won his third stage in Montpellier before Lucien Lazarides became the first rider to scale Mont Ventoux in Tour history in a stage won by Beaubais in Avignon. Coppi finally got his win for Circe in Briançon on stage 20 after a superlative solo attack over the Cols de Var and Isoire. That same day saw the end of Giminiani's challenge after he finished seven minutes back on Coblet. Two days later, in a whopping 98km time trial to Geneva, Coblet gave his home fans something to cheer with an emphatic victory to all but secure the overall win. In a priceless moment, Coblet caught the great Gino Bartoli, who had started eight minutes before him. Passing the Italian, Coblet placed his water bottle in his colleague's cage. Take it, Gino. There's still some left, he said. This was apparent revenge for an earlier incident in the race when, dehydrated, Coblet had asked Bartoli for a drink from his bidon, only for the Italian to take a sip before calmly emptying the rest of the contents on the road while staring the Swiss directly in the eyes. Two days later, Coblet rode into Paris to become Switzerland's second tour winner in as many years. After a career-high tour finish and the polka dot jersey, Giminiani, referring to the Swiss national jerseys, joked, Chasing after these white crosses, you could end up finishing at the Red Cross. Such was Coblet's indomitability, the Frenchman claimed to be the real winner. When asked about his rival, he simply replied, He doesn't count. I'm the first human. On his debut tour, Coblet's bounty exceeded his four stage triumphs and the yellow jersey. An Italian businessman reputedly greeted him after the race and presented him with a cheque for one million lira for naming rights on a special Coblet comb. So, what happened next? The peddler de charme was not the only rider to cash in on his reputation. After his well-publicised tumble off the obisque, 
Van Est became something of a folk hero. Noticing that the Dutchman had been wearing a Pontiac watch at the time of his fall, the Belgian brand capitalised on the episode by using Piron's iconic photo of the tearful Van Est on the edge of the mountain. With an arrow pointing to his left wrist and the intact watch, the slogan ran, I fell 70 metres off a mountain, my heart nearly stopped, but not my Pontiac. It was the start of a long sponsorship and an innovative ad campaign with the Dutch team who came back to the tour the next year to win two stages. In 1953, the Dutch won four stages, which included Van Est, now sporting the latest timekeeper in Pontiac's new Mayo Jean range, taking the spoils in Monaco ahead of a brace from his good friend Wout Wagtmans. Both men took stages again in 1954, with Wagtmans wearing the yellow jersey on as good as home soil after winning the opening stage from Amsterdam to Braskat, across the border in Belgium, his first of two stints leading the race that year. In 1955, the Dutch even won a 12.5km team time trial as part two of the opening stage, putting Wagtmans in yellow for a third time. In the remainder of the 50s, Van Est, twice, Gerrit Vorting, twice, and Wagtmans donned the jersey again in what became something of a golden period for Dutch cycling. Such was their success over the roads of France each summer that Van Est and Wagtmans even recorded their own song in 1958 called Tour de France, complete with jaunty drums and accordion. A translation of the catchy chorus reads Tour Tour Tordi Tordi France. Who will ride in the laurel wreath this year? Who will sit at the front? Who will hang out the back? Come on, push a little more. The yellow jersey's worth it. Van Est's verse, flatter than an opening week transitional stage and in an accent heavier than an elephant, contained the knowing lines, you might fall into a ravine, struggle from the pain, and with a flat tire, you're standing at the side of the road. But if your legs go fast, you win a stage. Then you're flying without bad luck, like the king of the road. So fall je in the ravine, verrek je van de pijn. En met de lekke band, dan sta je lang de kant. Maar gaan de benen rap, dan win je een etap. Dan vlieg je zonder pech, als koning van de weg. Door de Frans, jongen pak je kans. Door, door, door de, door de Frans. Wie rijdt er dit jaar in de lauwe krans? Wie zit er aan de kop, wie hangt er aan de staart? Zet hem even op die hele trui, die is het waard.
Van Est rode the tour nine times between 1951 and 1961, finishing a career-high eighth in 1957, the year the young Jacques Anquetil snared the first of his five victories. On the track, he won three World Championship pursuit medals and a national title on four occasions. He added two more Bordeaux-Paris titles to his Palmares in 1952 and 1961, and was also the Dutch road race champion in 1956 and 1957. By winning the opening stage of the 1953 Giro, he also became the first Dutchman to wear the iconic pink jersey, five weeks after he took a maiden Dutch victory in the Tour of Flanders. Van Est retired in 1964, aged 41, and having just made his second appearance at the Vuelta. Capitalising on his locomotive nickname, he worked as a subcontractor for the digging of railroad dikes and ditches for cables. He ran this business for 18 years before retiring, but continued cycling well into his 70s. And what of Hugo Coblet? Well, he never won the Tour de France again. Like a proverbial bus, the Swiss waited almost half a century before two came in rapid succession. They've been waiting for a third ever since. Despite the best efforts of Alex Zuller and Tony Rominger, both tour runners-up in the 90s, Switzerland still awaits a worthy successor to Kubler and Koblet. After Koblet's win in the 1951 tour, he toyed with the idea of shooting a film in Italy before accepting an invitation to ride the amateur tour of Mexico in October. While in Central America, he contracted an illness that caused him kidney and lung problems that would plague him for the rest of his career. He never rode at the same imperious level as he had done that July in 1951. Jean Bobet, the brother of triple tour winner Louis Son, said Coblet began to suffer in the mountains at 2,000 metres, then 1,500 metres, then at 1,000 metres, until we saw him unable to ride over even the smallest hill. But it was not as if the winds disappeared. Coblet won another Tour of Romandie and two more Tours de Suisse, with multiple stage wins in both, plus stage wins at the Giro and the Vuelta. But something was not the same, and he never finished another Tour de France. The efficiency of his smooth pedalling was lost somewhere in the Atlantic, between Mexico and Europe. Coblet's sudden loss of form was one of cycling's great mysteries. When his hair started thinning, he lost the need for the comb for which he was now being paid 7 million lira to promote. And, as those Hollywood looks went south, so too did Coblet's morale. Coblet had married the 22-year-old model Sonia Bull in 1953, but things were already going sour when, having retired in 1957, Coblet moved to Argentina to work for Pirelli and Alfa Romeo. After suffering from homesickness, the profligate Coblet returned to Switzerland just as his marriage started to disintegrate. After Sonia refused a reconciliation in 1964, Coblet, by now heavily in debt, went into a downward spiral. He died later that year in an apparent suicide after driving his white Alfa Romeo into a tree at a speed of more than 120 kilometres per hour. By an odd twist of fate, the doctor who signed the death certificate listed Coblet's name as Kubler, that of his great rival. 
Sonia refused her husband's inheritance rather than take on his chronic debts and unpaid tax bills. It was a sad and sordid end for a rider once known for his charm and elegance. On Coblet's return to the tour in 1953, having not defended his crown in 52 because of injury, the Swiss had crashed twice on the descent of the Col de Salor, the neighbouring climb to the Obisque in the Pyrenees. On the second occasion, he skidded and hit a pylon at more than 70 kilometres per hour before being taken to hospital with several broken ribs in the back seat of a car. Around the same time, on the descent of the Obisque, a 20-year-old French debutant called Guy Bouchel lost control and fell 35 metres into a ravine in an incident remarkably similar to Van Est's two years previously. His bike was found 150 metres further down the mountain, while Bouchel, who was presumed dead at first, had his fall cushioned by a bed of moss and ferns. Following the Van Est incident in 1951, all tour vehicles were supplied with safety kits, including long lengths of rope. Bouchel was hauled back up to the road where, despite passing out twice, he was given the all-clear, although he was forced to withdraw from the tour. Half a century after his sensational crash, the significance of Van Est's brush with death was marked by the Tour de France with a monument on the apex of the corner where the Dutchman plunged off the road. On the second rest day of the 2001 tour, Van Est, then 78, made the sentimental trip back with Marinus Vagtmans, the nephew of his old friend and singing partner, Vout. Also present was Roger de Kock, the Belgian who had first raised the alarm after witnessing the fall. In an emotional scene which you can find on YouTube, Van Est rubs tears from his eyes as the plaque is unveiled bearing the inscription, Here, during the Tour de France on the 17th of July 1951, Vim Van Est fell 70 metres deep. He survived the crash, but lost the yellow jersey. Referring to his survival that day, an emotional Van Est, his grey hair immaculately combed, says, Boys, we're still here. We're still here. What did I do to deserve all this? And to think of all those people who aren't here anymore. Vagtmans embraces the old man and reaches for a tissue. Vim, he says. Be happy. Van Est replies, Yes, we're still here, Rini. Later, during the ceremony, Vagmans pulls de Kock forward, saying, If this man had thought not as a person, but as a cyclist, then Vim would have been still lying there in the evening. Van Est lights up a cigarette, a habit dating from his old tobacco smuggling days. Cold up here, he says. Taking a drag, his jacket sleeve rides up a little to reveal a Pontiac watch on his wrist. Same as before, the old man grins. During the poignant ceremony, Carol Hubert, the director of the marketing company that coordinated the memorial, says, There, in that ravine, is the beginning of Dutch tour history. Another significant chapter was written in 1968, when Jan Janssen became the first Dutchman to win the tour with Joop Zotemelk following suit in 1980. A 30-year barren run was ended in 2019, when Mike Turnison became the first Dutchman to wear the yellow jersey since 1989, following his surprise win on the opening stage in Brussels. 
Turneson was the 17th Dutchman after Van Est to don the Mayo Jean, and the last in a list that also includes Wagtman's nephew, Rini. Two years after unveiling the plaque on the Obisque, and not long after his 80th birthday, Wim Van Est, the pioneer who broke the seal and almost paid the ultimate price, died. But the twisted remains of his bike live on, on display in the Velorama Bike Museum in the Dutch city of Nimehen. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport, written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, produced by Pete Burton. You can read more from Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze. You can find me at Graham Wilgos. If you want to see the holiday snaps he's finally posting from six years ago, you can follow Pete on Instagram. Meanwhile, you can find Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK. Plus, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. If you've enjoyed this or any other episode, please do subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your favourite shows. And join us next time out. What? Eddie Merckx has been caught? It's not true. What are you talking about, George? The words of veteran Belgian radio reporter Luc Varenne summed up the thoughts of a million cycling fans as he demanded answers from his colleague Georges Malfay. Just how was the cannibal reeled in by Bernard Thévenet on the climb to Pralou at the 1975 Tour de France? A day that ended Merckx's iron grip on the yellow jersey and signalled the end of his long reign at the top. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.